can you hear that okay? Yeah. You want it louder? Yeah? Make it teensy. No. See, this is what happens when we try to poll 80 people. Okay. How is that now? It's not echoing. It's all right. Okay. So tonight I want to talk about the, the second noble truth. Uh, the truth of cause the, the cause of our suffering, Samudaya. You remember last time I spoke about the first noble truth, that of dukkha, the unreliability, unsatisfactory nature. And so then when the Buddha decided, you know, the four things he wanted to tell us, the facts of life, that if we understand, will free us from unnecessary suffering. So out of everything that he picked as the cause was, as I'm, I'm sure you know, this isn't like a surprise, but I will read it to you. Uh, this is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving. Craving is the um, English translation that's usually used for the Pali word tanha, and I'll go more into wording in a minute. It is this craving which produces renewal of being, which is bound up with delight and lust and seeks pleasure now here and now there. I love this definition because it kind of gets to the seductive quality of it. Bound up with delight, seeks pleasure now here and now there. Namely, craving for sense pleasures, craving for being, craving for existence, craving for bhava-tanha, which is like states of being, and craving for what is usually translated as non-existence, but which is often um, described as kind of mm, the, the not wanting a particular experience to be happening, which can like move into aversion. So I want to talk about this tonight, this second noble truth, this quality in our experience, in our minds, our hearts, of tanha, and hopefully invite us to explore in our own experience to see if it's true for yourself that actually this experience is a cause of suffering. And then I will hope to point to some ways I see that, but to invite you to explore. Now, as with the first noble truth, the Buddha says it is to be understood. The second one is to be abandoned. And when we talk about tanha, uh, craving, is one, a way you can look at it is, again, not just uh, what we call uh, the wanting of greed, but also that craving for non-existence, kind of the pushing away of what we don't like. So kind of both of these aspects with delusion underneath. Of course, it never comes without delusion. But I can't answer this, but just to put out, why did the Buddha pick tanha rather than delusion as the cause of our suffering, as the thing to explore? I'm not claiming I can answer that. I'm just putting that out. And it's to be abandoned. Now, I would think that well, the reason I really like exploring and talking about this this craving, which leads to clinging, which leads to grasping so fast, so it's almost not synonymous, but close. Because in some ways it's rather obvious on the grosser level 
I mean, craving for sense pleasures, when we're really caught in wanting, craving, desiring a sense pleasure, um, we can notice, right? As long as we don't notice, which is amazing. But it's not that subtle. And if you really look, intellectually could kind of understand how that could be a cause of suffering. Yeah? <laughs> no? <laughs> but even that, we can get really lost in. And I would say, in my experience, that's the most gross level of the way that tanha leading to clinging just seduces us into confusion and suffering. So I love exploring it in my practice, in my life, because it goes to such, such subtle aspects of our experience where it has the effect of leading us into confusion and suffering. I just want to point to some of those as we go along. So it's to be abandoned. But if even intellectually we could agree, yeah, okay, I, I intellectually think that could be a good thing to get rid of craving. And many people have come and said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. I'm putting down craving, right? <laughs> or even just pick one thing you decided to stop craving. Did it work? You could maybe really force yourself not to go, even a sense pleasure, not to go get that thing, right? But just sitting down and saying, okay, I've thought about it. I heard it. It's to be abandoned. I take a vow and abandon craving. We can't do it as an act of will. So don't think if you haven't done it as an act of will, it's because you're weak. <laughs> it's because, because only wisdom, only wisdom sees and understands. Craving arises through ignorance, through non-understanding, through not recognizing accurately. And it's only wisdom, this I keep on going on about seeing accurately, which I didn't realize I say that so much until I hear Brian keep referring to what Carol says. So now I say, oh, <laughs> I guess I say that a lot. <laughs> but it's okay, I mean it. Um, the steadiness of mindfulness that leads to wisdom. When wisdom recognizes a situation accurately, craving doesn't make sense. It's not abandoned in a particular moment from an act of will but it's the natural response of wisdom, which is good news. But our job is to set up the conditions for wisdom to arise. So what I want to tonight in this talk, because there's so many ways to talk about this second noble truth. One, which Sally will do tomorrow night, is the whole uh, train of dependent origination, the 12 links, how in a moment you can experience how uh, in, in the, the middle part of it, which is the most salient for our meditation experience, to see how from the point of contact, the feeling tone arises, and from the feeling tone, immediately there can be this the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, how the habit of mind can move, just that moving of craving into pleasant and pulling away of craving to unpleasant, and then into the whole train of becoming birth and death, yeah, just like that. That's a really interesting and very useful way to talk about it and then to explore in our own experience. But So Sally's talking about that tomorrow. Whew, I don't have to. So what I want to do tonight is, um, it's just the way my mind works, is to really uh, offer an invitation and just some pointers from my experience to turn our attention in and explore investigate what is this 
mental, physical experience, really mostly mental, with physical concomitance sometimes, that is called craving. How do we learn to recognize it? As it comes, as it goes. How does it arise? How does it behave in the mind stream? What is its nature? So, and when, when we're in the grip of craving, how does it behave? And then how do we behave when we're not aware or we can't shake loose of its grip? How does it pass away again? To really, there's no way wisdom's going to abandon it if we can't even recognize when it's happening. And when we recognize it, instead of um, a tendency, again, often is, first we decide it's a good idea to abandon. Then we see that doesn't work. Then we say, okay, I'll pay attention. And then we start to see how frequently craving, wanting, desiring, clinging arises in our experience. Has anyone noticed? Have you noticed that the more you're paying attention, the more frequently it seems to come? Because you're practicing wrongly. No, because <laughs> we're seeing, we're seeing what we mostly don't see. And so my invitation here is not to think of it, not to approach it, okay, I've got to go see all the craving and it's going to be horrible because it's bad and the more I see is more the proof of how bad I am and it's hopeless and it's awful. We don't want to see it. It's a bad thing, you know. I remember it popped in my mind tonight. Years ago, I was talking to a, a good friend, meditator. It was, it was an interview, but we're also friends and we were just talking about she was seeing a lot of craving, a lot of wanting, and I would just kind of, I get excited by that. I don't think, oh, that's horrible. I get excited, because that's what we have to see. Sati, mindfulness, has to see what's happening, and that's what lets the wisdom come, see how it behaves. <clears throat> so we were talking, and I was pointing things out, and I was all excited. And then she goes, well, she says, it's like, it's like with all the love in your heart, you're saying to me so lovingly, Dear, you're just covered with green slime. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> that's not what I mean at all when I invite us to explore this. It's like freedom comes from recognizing accurately. So seeing what's going on is the beginning. There's a place in the suttas where the Buddha talks about three, you could say three kind of levels three kinds of wisdom. Three, yeah. And all three of these, they kind of play together and intertwine, but only the third level is truly transformative, but we need them all. So the first level, called in Pali, Sutta Mayapanya, which means Sutta means that which is heard. So it's basically heard, acquired wisdom, which is, is the beginning of right view the Buddha says, you know. So when we talk about impermanence or I'm talking about craving or anything we hear, we, we hear it, we come in, and that's the first access to that as wisdom. It, I mean, but we may or may not, we don't know from our own experience anything about it, but we hear it. And that can be the uh, catalyst for us moving into the second level of wisdom, which is Chintamayapanya, which is, you could call it our, our own um, natural intelligence, where maybe we're pondering, say, 
and what I'm talking about tonight, craving. We might be pondering, remembering sometimes in our experience where we could see how wanting this particular thing and not getting it was a lot of suffering, and when the wanting went away, it was you know, just kind of thinking, about, yeah, I could see how that makes sense. And, and we're pondering, and it's coming deeper in, and it, 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 it um, motivates us to keep exploring, but it's not truly transformative. And this is the, the level that we're all at a lot of the time. And it's really important and useful because not everyone, but so many of us have, have grown up with such um, a deeply conditioned kind of giving power to thought, to thought as the way to understand everything, to think our way through, to figure it out. You know what I mean? And then we keep on thinking, keep on thinking. So for a lot of times we can feel like we're a little bit stuck there. We've thought it through, we see it, we really understand. You come and say, I really understand impermanence. I do really understand. We could all give it a discourse on impermanence. And then we turn around and get all upset when our good sitting changes. Because, you know, we understand it on that intellectual level. You know, it really makes sense. But it hasn't been on the third level, bhavana mayapanya, which is like insight level, where it's like we get it in our cells, is the way I like to think of it. Where in, in terms of anything, we have a, what we'd call an insight. You know, it doesn't change forever, but many, you all come in in different ways. You've had an insight into something. Oh, oh, I see. This craving went away and I really get it. It's peaceful and I didn't get the thing I wanted and I didn't need to. Here's the peace, it's right here. The difference between hearing me say that, the first level, nodding to yourself, yeah, that makes sense, the second level, actually experiencing that below the level of thought is like, wow, you know, an aha moment, a shift of perception really is what insight is. We recognize in a different way. So these three levels are bouncing around, working together. It's only the steady awareness is what allows this third level of shift of perception to arise. And we keep on paying attention and then we, we, we understand more what that shift of perception was bringing to us. So, so then I want to talk about, to begin with, just talk about this, this word tanha, the literal, the closest, I mean, I'm not a Pali scholar, but the most literal translation I've heard of this word is actually thirst. And so when we talk about, when I talk about, okay, I'm not a we, well, all these aggregates, but when I talk about <laughs> tanha, I'm referring to this, it's a quality, a, a mental factor really, a, a quality in the mind-heart that arises and passes like everything else. So this quality of thirst is, I find really helpful, this, uh, this leaning into or leaning away, I need this, I thirst for something. And when it strengthens, when we kind of grab a hold of something, it strengthens from the craving, from the leaning in, the thirst, to clinging, to grasping. The same thing, it's a little more, you know, gripping. Now, in English, the word um, craving is often used the same as the word desire. 
And this can get very confusing. And this is only English. I, I've been mulling about languages, you know, because when Brian was talking in this talk a couple times ago about um, views and, you know, how we don't even know what our particular perceptual influences have been from our whole upbringing that will inform the perceptions we have that lead to views. And I think the, the language we grow up speaking and thinking in is really an interesting way that does that. So for English, there's certain constructions and ways of talking about things. Desire is one word that is very confusing, where Pali has a very specific word, tanha, for this thirst, a different word, chanda, for a different kind of thing. Both of those in English we use desire. But then I, being a native English speaker, have no clue how these words fall and what the the habits of mind and thinking are for, you know, there's many other native languages represented here. You know, I can never know what it's like to be a native Spanish speaker or Hindi speaker or French or Swedish or Finnish or Persian or various forms of Chinese. You know, there's so many different languages represented here. And for each of them, there's a whole different, you know, way you think in that language. It's really interesting. This, you know, no wonder that our perceptions are all different and that's going to inform the view and how we understand. It's a little aside. But just to say, when, so now when I'm talking about words, of course, I'm coming from English. And it may or may not quite um, correlate with the language that's kind of natural for you. And there's no way I can, there's no way I can do it other than English, but I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so we use the word desire, which is too broad for this state of tanha. And then many times people get into this confusion. They come and go, well, what's wrong with desire to take care of your family? How can you say that's the cause of suffering? And then we get all kind of reactive, you know, not quite noticed that, get really confused. What's wrong with desire? So I'm hungry and I have a desire to go eat. That's just normal life. How can you say that's the source of suffering, right? So there's two things going on. One is the word tanha, thirst, which is this, this yearning, this needing that takes us out of being able to recognize accurately in the present moment. The second is that when we talk about tanha as the source of suffering, it's not, it's about the quality of that state itself in that moment in the mind. It's not about the object that the tanha is leaning into. This is a pet, okay, this is a pet peeve of mine. Other teachers may say something different, just, uh, just uh, what a, honesty in advertising. Um, sometimes I hear people talk about wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. And I find that so incredibly confusing. Because what that's doing is focusing our attention onto the object, right? So you could say, desire for nibbana is a wholesome desire. And we're focusing the attention on the object, nibbana. But tanha is a state of heart or mind arising in the moment that then focuses the attention onto whatever the object is in a way that's moving out of balanced, open present in this moment. You can feel it. The little, the, 
that subtle pulling forward or pulling back if it's a way, oh, if only I got to Nibbana, everything would be okay, right? So it, Nibbana, which is certainly a wholesome object, whatever we know about it, but it's a wholesome object, it could be this, the, uh, an aspiration that's motivating us to land here in this moment, or it could be the source of incredible suffering because we're lost in tanha about it. Have you ever experienced that? You know, what's wrong with Nibbana, but you're like ready to just tie yourself up in knots. I came here for Nibbana and I'm just sitting here feeling <laughs> knee pain. And, you know? That's, uh, that's tanha. Expectation. Frustration. It's suffering. Not too, uh, not too hard to spot, but we get lost in it. So it's not about the object. It's about the quality in the mind of this thirst, this leaning in. There's another word in the Pali language, chanda, which is also variously translated, but it is ethically neutral, which means it's, it's, just, it's um, translated as a kind of excitement, uh, a desire to do, the energy to do something. And it, it's ethically neutral, meaning that whether it's wholesome or unwholesome depends on what other mind states come with it. So for instance, the sense of, I really have the energy I need to go get a better job because I'm, I'm about to have some more uh, a child and I want to really be able to take care of my family. Now, that's a complicated thing, so a lot of different emotions could come in at different times. But the sense of, yes, I want to care for my family can be compassion and chanta, this desire to do. That's different from craving. It's different from the, the source of suffering. You get a sense of that? But chanta can also... The, the actual word for the, the, um, the hindrance of sense desire, not all desire, but sen- that's often translated sense desire, the word in Pali is actually kamachanta. It's like excitement about the pleasures of the senses. And so in that way, it's not such a wholesome feeling because it's leading us into suffering. Not the good, bad, but leading us into suffering. But, so the word we translate as, as desire in English could often be used as chanta in Pali. It's, a, in a, it's also one of the, the four bases of success in terms of a meditation um, qualities, sometimes translated as zeal. This energy that gives us real, this real energy to practice, chanta, willingness to do. A really wholesome thing. So do you get a sense of what I'm meaning? about when we want to explore tanha, don't let yourself get all lost in what is the, um, what is the object. Because that's one of the ways that tanha, this craving, actually leads our mind into delusion, confusion, that keeps us from recognizing what's happening accurately. This zoning into the object desired and not noticing what's going on here in the mind, in the mind and heart. And so I'll say more about that, why what I'm really doing tonight, I didn't even get started, wow, what I'm really doing tonight is trying to bring us into an interest in exploring how does this work. So I want to use as a framework something um, that the Buddha talked about, the kind of Bhikkhu Bodhi, who the translator describes it as the three movements in the unfolding process of insight. But this is something the Buddha talked about, noticing the gratification, the danger, and the escape 
in particular areas of experience. I kind of want to use this as a framework for exploring this craving. I'm going to stay with craving now. Craving or grasping. So he's talking about before he was enlightened, he was pondering, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? And what is the escape? And he, it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification. And I love that. He's not saying, back like in my last talk, he's not saying everything's horrible, hate it all, and then you'll be happy. He's saying there is gratification, pleasure and joy in the world. The danger, that it's impermanent, mixed up with um, unreliability and subject to change. This is the danger. And the escape is the abandoning of desire and lust for the world. If, monks, there were no gratification in the world, beings would not become enamored, would not become like enthralled, really stuck to things in the world. But because there is gratification, we become enamored. If there were no danger in the world, beings would not become disillusioned. Beings would not suffer. If there were no escape from this, then beings could not escape from this disillusionment. But there is. So I just want to use those three as a, as a light um, reference point. So in talking about desire or craving that leads to clinging. I'm sure, well, maybe you don't, but the Buddha talked about four areas of grasping. I'm not going to go through them all, but the first one is sense pleasures, which is, as I said, the most, it's everywhere, very seductive, but in some ways the most obvious, but I'll start with that. Talks about grasping at views, which Brian talked about quite clearly, Grasping at uh, using rites and rituals, misunderstanding them as a way of purifying, which like, for instance, in the, in the, at the, his time in India, there was a belief of the Brahmas that if you went to certain rivers and washed yourself, it would wash away all your previous bad actions and all your bad comment, and which, you know, would be great. But he's saying, yeah, not so much. And the fourth is um, grasping at sense of self. So you can see they get increasingly more subtle. So in terms of, uh, I'll just start using sense pleasures as an example and talk a little bit, bit about sense of self. So in terms of the gratification, I think it's important uh, not to be able to recognize the gratification, the joy, the delight in sense pleasures, because that's true. And I don't know if, I, if we've said this before, but sometimes, you know, people think, well, because craving leads to suffering and sense pleasures lead to craving, I should actually not even notice the pleasant or move towards the pleasant. And there's certainly plenty of suttas in, uh, the, that the Buddha talked about where he's talking a lot about the dangers of sense pleasures in very graphic terms. I'm not going to go there tonight because I really more want to talk just about how the craving itself distorts our perception and leads us into confusion more than sense pleasures. But start by seeing that sense pleasures are pleasure, you know? Great. Pleasant sights, smells, tastes, touches, and all of that. So that's not, that's not so hard to see. 
the danger of it. The danger is the, the, the obvious one the Buddha talked about, that whatever the sense pleasure is, it's going to change and you're left, you know, falling flat. But, but another way, and that, that we can experience over and over, if we keep remembering to notice the craving, what we tend to do, and this is what I think is the more, a more subtle, pervasive uh, danger of um, attachment to sense pleasures, is the, um, the addictive quality of going to sense pleasures to, for gratification. And because we have access often to so many, when one falls flat, we don't notice that we move into the next one, right? Move into the next one. And that's exactly samsara, this round of birth and death of self and suffering. Okay, that one didn't happen. What about this next? Okay, that good sitting went away, but now I can go walk. Have you ever seen that? You're sitting, oh, okay, forget that sitting. I'm going to walk. It's going to be so good. And you go walking and you're like, oh, okay, forget this walking. I'm going to go sit. It's going to be so nice, right? Okay, that's all. I'm going to go eat. Then I'm going to feel good. Well, no, but now I'll go have a nap. That'll do it. And we don't quite notice the process, you know, and we're just going from one to the next to the next. There's a seductive quality to it. There's a seductive quality to the craving itself. But that the... The uh, definition I read, you know, accompanied by delight, seeking pleasure now here and now there. And so there's almost a way at times that the very wanting itself becomes associated or can be in our mind with gratification. If you really turn around and look at the experience of wanting, well, in my experience, it really isn't so pleasant. It isn't gratifying. But we don't turn around and look at it. We just keep leaning into the next thing. And so in our mind, the wanting becomes associated with getting the thing we want. And it's like the only way, you know, an untaught worldling, as the Buddha says, knows to get away from the unpleasant. Remember, I I used that sutta the other night. The only escape an untaught person knows from unpleasant experience is to lust after sense pleasure. This becomes what we think is the escape, but it's really the danger. This way we just keep getting like pulled by the nose from one to the next to the next to the next and we don't even notice. And then when we do notice, we go, oh, but that's okay. I'm in charge of it all. And it's not that unpleasant. This, this, uh, this is my favorite little story that to me exemplifies some sorrow when we don't really want to look at the suffering of it. And we can do this a lot. Good friend of mine, dear friend, very wise person, has the habit of really likes particular cookies. Just um, very in a very restrained way, two cookies after lunch, two cookies before bed, you know, certain cookies, very restrained. So we were hanging out one day and just we were talking about craving, dependent origination and stuff. I said, this is, and I was saying, but this is exactly, you know, there's the craving, this discontent, this leaning in, having the cookie. The person said, no, there's no suffering in this. The person saying, no, there's no suffering in this. I said, what do you mean? He said, no. I said, well, wait, when you don't get the cookie, then what? He goes, I'll always get the cookie. <laughs> and that's, that's really what we think. And, you know, a lot of times in our life, we just substitute something. I didn't get that cookie, but I get something else, you know. 
And so we never stop and look at the process. We keep looking in the wrong direction. It keeps us looking to the gratification instead of turning around. We're always looking for the cookie instead of turning around. You say, but as long as I can get a cookie, what's the problem? You know, this is what keeps us bound to samsara. The willingness to turn around and look at this craving for sense pleasure. And sometimes people are almost like, I mean, I've had people say, no one, no one here, I don't think, but say almost like they don't want to look that carefully at the, it's just feeling how that craving feels, that leaning into the cookie, because almost like a fear, but then I won't really enjoy the cookie anymore. Have you had that sense? If I really look, you know, if I'm out in nature and it's so beautiful, the nature and the buds and the magnolia tree and oh, it's so wonderful and I'm so great. I don't want to look at the craving. I want to feel like I'm incredibly one with nature. It's so happy. And I don't just go seeing, 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 (laughs) pleasant, pleasant. So we don't want it because we actually, um, first that's not how it goes, but we're attached to conflating, mixing up this craving with the gratification. It's really so poignant to me that the thing that we're looking to for our happiness and ease is the very thing that keeps us spinning in, in wanting, in sense of insufficiency, in not being enough. Because what is wanting? It's looking to something else to fill us up. And as long as we're buying into that, we're always going to be experiencing in that moment a sense of being incomplete. The cookie's going to do it, but not for long. So then we have to crank up another one, crank up another one, go out and, you know, look at that bud again. Well, the bud doesn't do it today, so maybe I can find a lizard, and maybe the (laughs) lizard will do it. Or I wish the frogs would start croaking again, but it's not as nice as last night, you know. But, you know, not being lost in the wanting doesn't mean there's no appreciation. You know, we still appreciate the beauty of nature. We can still appreciate a meal, but we're not looking to that meal to do more than be what that meal can be, which is pretty limited, no matter how good it is. But this is Thich Nhat Hanh. We need to distinguish between indulging in sense pleasures, what he's calling indulging, I'm I'm calling just being lost in the tanha, the craving, not seeing it, and the joy and happiness that we experience when we are mindful and at peace. This attachment to sense pleasures, or just one sense pleasure, the cookie, brings about suffering and entanglement. Look to that. It brings out complication, entanglement, both in the present moment and the future, for ourselves and others. But the joy and happiness of a peaceful mind brings neither suffering nor attachment in the present or in the future for ourselves or for others. So that's just something you might explore if you're outside and you're thinking, well, this beautiful sunset oh, but what if that's Tanha? I can't tell if it's Tanha. I can't tell if it's craving or not. Should I look at it? No. Should I, how does Tanha feel? I don't know. How can I tell? You know? Okay, right then, that's doubt. Just notice that. But <laughs> when, we talk, when Sally talked about papancha, papancha in the mind, I like to talk about papancha of action. 
And craving will really lead you. This is where you see the complication. You're just appreciating the sunset. It's lovely, it's gone, no craving, fine. If you find you're planning your whole day to get out there for the sunset the next day, there's a little bit of craving going on. You know, everything starts to get complicated because we somehow have to set it up to get that thing again, you know. Not bad, just noticing the complication that comes in. So this is part of the danger, the danger of craving. Another danger, and I'll I'll stay with sense pleasures and then move into um, some of the others. The Buddha describes, let's see if I have it. I just want to read it the way he said it. He talks about uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. They may be understood as a maker of measurement in our mind, in our heart. In other words, when there's this craving in our mind, in our heart, not recognized, we're being led by the nose by it, it, it puts limitations on the range and depth of the mind, of the heart. Basically, it narrows our experience. Have you ever noticed that? When you really are into wanting something, have you noticed how everything else becomes irrelevant? And the, the breadth, the feel, the, the limitless nature of mind and heart suddenly becomes all about the cookie or whatever it is. And everything else is either in the way or irrelevant. And that then affects how we actually perceive experience and how we respond to experience. Uh, Sayada Upandita was a really quite a profound meditation teacher. He's a Burmese teacher. He's like in his 90s now. Very tough teacher. But he, he talked about, and I really like this, he said, under the influence of tanha, when it's happening in our mind and heart and we're not recognizing it, turn around and recognizing it, The way the delusion manifests is, one, we don't accurately recognize what is here, and two, we actually perceive what is not here. So we're like doubly disconnected at times under the influence of tanha. And this can be rather subtle. I'll just give a simple example, but you can uh, explore it for yourself. See how it works. So I've used this example quite a lot because it's simple but accessible when I was uh, in teaching in Yucca Valley years ago, and it's this lovely desert that you can walk out in. And every morning I love to walk out in that desert. With however much, you just walk out and it's, you know, a desert. <laughs> so there's some trees and the yucca trees and various animals, not too many, some birds, a little jackrabbit sometime, once in a while a snake, once in a great, great while a large land tortoise. So I was walking one day and just very present, how, we, how you'll be here, you know, just with the isness of things. So noticing when there's not tanha, when there's not wanting in the mind, it's just present. That like, kind of like big mind, it's just whatever's occurring is occurring. There's no toing and froing, no problem. And suddenly the thought came in, which in itself wasn't a problem, maybe I'll see a tortoise today. Thought came, didn't go. And this is how the whole sense of self and everything gets created. Some experience comes and tanha leans into it and then grasping just grabs it and makes it a solid thing. So that thought became, maybe I'll see a tortoise. 
And I, the wanting came up, just like the wanting for the cookie. And not noticing the wanting, what had been just kind of fast and present and simple and easy became really narrowed down and I was just looking for that particular experience, looking for tortoise. So walking through the desert, boom. And then I noticed, I was going, not tortoise, not tortoise, not tortoise, looking, looking, <laughs> looking. And that was really my experience, you know? And it actually wasn't a very pleasant walk anymore. It's just like, no, no, I want this. That isn't, that isn't, that isn't, that isn't. I never saw one. Luckily, at some point, I noticed it, which is good, because then I could use it for a Dharma talk. But no, then I noticed it. <laughs> and this is what I want to invite us to do. Notice what's occurring then. Not jump onto, oh, I'm so bad, I shouldn't be wanting. Notice what's occurring. You can really, first you feel for yourself mentally, because craving's a mental thing, but how it comes up in your body, in your mind. How do you experience it? Because we want to learn to recognize it to know it's present, this is great, this is mindfulness coming in. And so for me, now I'm so f- I'm familiar with it, I mean there's sometimes you don't recognize it, but I can just feel it, I, it's a kind of a physical contraction, almost like mentally leaning forward, you know? Sometimes you are, like just pull, so I could notice that. And notice, and it's really interesting, the, the limitation, the narrowing of attention and the narrowing of the mind and heart just on wanting this thing. And the sense of rejection or disinterest in anything else. Just to see that. And then when the wanting, and if, if we can, when we notice wanting, not hate it, not judge ourselves, but just explore it. If it's some little thing where you don't actually, you know, need to do much, here on retreat is a great time to do it. Just stick with the wanting, the tanha, the craving. Notice how it feels. Notice what kind of thoughts come up. Notice what behaviors. If it's so strong, you can't not act on it. As, Tejin, as Utejaniya says, okay, wanting's just doing its job, but you bring awareness along with it and let awareness do its job. So you notice how the wanting is working, how it's driving us. It's really fascinating. And at some point, I promise, I don't know at what point, but it's going to drop away because everything that comes together from construction dissolves again. Absolutely everything. And so if you can hang with it and actually watch as it dissolves and then keep on being present, you may notice the quality of ease, a quality of peace that we usually associate with getting what we want, but it's actually because the wanting itself has dissolved. We don't have to be driven by getting that thing. When we really learn to understand this, wanting is simply another experience, mental, physical experience that comes a lot, goes, as often as it comes, it goes. It's not like it's going to come one more time, then it goes and never leave again. Every time it comes, it's going to go. And we can really get to explore it so it doesn't become something to be afraid of or hate, but we can really understand how it works. The seduction of it for us, the gratification, and the dangers of it for us. And this is just with sense desire, which is the most obvious one, but you see how really quite subtle it can get. So the way uh, it causes you not to see what's around. So like I'm in the desert looking for tortoise and just oblivious to everything else. 
we do that, you know, you, you want to get to the meal on time, you're like ready to walk over people, you know, <laughs> you're like your best friend, get out of here, there's only one more corn muffin, you know, get, <laughs> and then you sit down and go, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy. <laughs> so our job is just to notice these things, these subtle things that come up in the mind with wanting and not getting what we want. But it also can distort the perception. So say, in a simple way, I'm looking for a tortoise, and you see a rock in the distance, and the mind goes, oh, tortoise, you know, and you go running over, oh, it's a rock. Okay, but you know, the, the Tibetan saying that, that craving puts feathers on the object, makes it look really much more attractive. You know, give all kinds of examples of that. But just noticing it, really interesting. So we can't really see what's here. And... So this, both of these, these ways of not seeing accurately and this narrowing of the, the mind and the heart and not recognizing what is here and seeing what isn't here is also the way that the, the dangers that come in craving of attachment to views. I mean, we're all going to have views. Brian talked about that. I don't have to go into it, but the attachment to it, that this alone is true, you know, that, the craving for it. And the sense of self, which in some ways is the most subtle and most pervasive view that comes and goes, comes and goes. Again, Brian talked a lot about it. I only want to mention um, a way we can use exploring our internal experience of this thirst, this craving, this grasping, to explore how the sense of self arises and passes in a moment. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who we've mentioned quite a few times, a great Thai meditation and forest monk master, has a great line that said, the sense of self is simply a condition that arises when there is grasping and clinging in the mind. Not some big, solid thing we've got to chip away at and try and understand. And So for me, this, because I'm kind of kinesthetic, practical, not not through ideas trying to understand and through that idea then let go of that idea, which is the way some, that's the way some people do process and learn. We're all different in the way we take in information and learn. For me, it's very kind of um, practical moment to moment. And so Buddha Dasa's way of describing it really works. The sense of self is simply a condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. Or what... Uh, the Sakaya Ditti, the view, identity view. So what we can simply notice as we get more and more familiar with how craving tanha feels when it comes up in our mind-body, like sometimes I couldn't say what, but I can kind of tell it's hanging around. You get more familiar with it. Then you'll see the way it's described in terms of sense of self is Anything that arises in our experience, any of the six sense doors, a sight, a smell, a sound, a taste, body sensation, a thought or emotion, the five aggregates, which Brian talked about another way of the same, talking about the same thing. You'll see how there's times you're sitting or walking and there's sounds are coming and going or someone was describing today, thoughts were just coming and going like wisps, no problem. But suddenly a thought comes and it's like, yes, Everything in the mind and heart comes together, collects around that, and grabs a hold of it, right? This is how it is. 
whether it's my back hurts or I want a cookie or that sound is not acceptable, whatever it is, something in the constantly changing experience, this movement of leaning in, tanha, grasping, has grabbed a hold of that experience and made it me or mine. The sense of me arising very strongly with that. You know, me and my back pain. Me and my cookie. Me and the sunset. You get a sense of of what I'm saying? And then it's often a thought. And when we don't notice it, of course, it leads to a whole series of thoughts. And usually we wake up in that series of thoughts and it's become that particular me. The me, and I know Brian gave a lot of different examples, you know, the different stories of me. The me who's, who's very clumsy. The me who's an incredible yogi. The me who went through all these things in the third grade. The me who really feels out of it today. The me, you know, all of those different ones. But because we don't stop and explore we don't stop and look at it. As that's Brian, I, I listened to his talk online, it's like he's saying, you know, the me in third grade is the same me that's sitting here, right? Doesn't it feel like that? Because we don't really just stop and notice that sense of self arising. It's just another experience that comes and goes. It's the same as being able to explore tanha. The sense of self really is just a lot of thoughts that begin from a moment of tanha, a moment of craving connected with any particular thing. It can be anything, any stupid thing, you know? The particular chair you want to sit in in the dining room. That can be a craving for that can be a source of a huge story of self, right? Someone else is in your chair, your chair. What are they doing there? I've been sitting there every meal, this whole retreat, and now they're there. I don't think I'm making, I'm, no one this retreat's told me that, but I've been a lot of retreats at, at IMS. Believe me, this is not something I'm completely making up. <laughs> and people will tell you, m- mostly people don't say it until after it's over and they've really seen it. Because in it, we don't recognize this is craving and sense of self. We think that person is out to get me sitting in my chair. And the whole sense of, you know, but what we can do is start to feel that craving, that so you walk in the dining room, you see that there's it's a sight. The perception is just seeing. The whole story of me comes up around that. A suffering one, the craving. And then whatever goes on, you turn, you walk out, that whole thing falls away. That me, that's birth and death of sense of self around craving. Another sense of self will arise, no doubt, quickly. But that's okay. We can just, with our awareness, with our interest, explore how this happens. And this is one of the really subtle ways that this movement of tanha, this movement of craving, is the the cause of so much confusion and suffering. It's at the heart, the seed of the moment after moment after moment creation of story of self. Unseen is the source of suffering. I'm not saying, actually, that the stories creating sense of self need to be a problem. I'm not saying that. They're thoughts driven by craving, and when awareness recognizes that's what's happening and sees through it, we don't have to get rid of it. 
It's just another arising mental, emotional construction that comes and goes like every other mental construction. It's not needing to be a problem. But we can really get interested in seeing how the craving comes up in relation to anything, a sense experience or a view or a memory, and off to the races, as someone said, or not. And instead of judging it, just explore and see, bring the steady awareness to see. Whatever arises, dissolves. The craving arises and dissolves. The sense of self arises and dissolves. So the escape, I'm talking about gratification, danger, and escape. I want to talk about, again, in our moment-to-moment experience here in a simple way that we can practice. So I'm not at the moment talking about the, the big escape forever, but just in a moment of seeing. The escape is this, this ability, the steadiness of awareness. Awareness, it's, awareness itself does not uproot clinging does not uproot craving. But awareness, the steady awareness that allows us to see this whole chain of cause and effect like I've just been describing with sense of self or with wanting a cookie or whatever, to see it all, to see the craving come and go, the steady awareness is what sets the conditions for the wisdom to come in. So after 75 times of walking into the dining room and that whole sense of self around the person sitting in my seat, finally wisdom comes in and goes, why don't I sit over there? You know? (laughs) So easy, you know? (laughs) The craving was abandoned by wisdom. With an act of will, you could say, I'm just not going to do it, I'm going to sit over there. Look at them, look at them, look at them. I'm sitting over here, I'm not craving. (laughs) It's not the same as, why don't I just sit over there? And the craving is abandoned. That's from wisdom. But what we can do is set up the conditions by really taking our refuge in the steady awareness by getting interested in this process rather than judging or fearing it. So I'm going to give a a really such an insignificant example you're going to say, you know, but that's why I'm picking this example because this is what we can do so often on retreat to really see because it's the same it works in the same way with the big things. So one day, um, I, I wasn't on retreat, but I was, there was teaching. I got up in the morning and had like a, a mystery novel sitting next to the bed. So I get up in the morning and I, you know, I'm getting dressed, whatever. And I just, this, just this strong craving came up. Oh, let me just pick that up and read a little bit. Which like, so what? I mean, this is hardly a horrible thing to pick up and read. So I was watching, just watching, except do it. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to watch, you know, the craving. And as I say, this is so trivial because people would say, so what if you pick it up and read? Who cares? Nobody cares. There's nothing wrong. Again, it's not about focusing on the object. The interest is in looking, you know, at what's going on. It's easier to look at the craving when the object isn't very important to you. It's easier. So pick the little things, you know, start with the little things. So I said, okay, I'm not, but I'm going to sit here and really just be really aware of the wanting and the thoughts that come up in my mind about it and all. So I sat there for, it wasn't long, you know, a few minutes. So I didn't just say, oh, forget it and go and brush my teeth. I sat there and just watched the whole process, you know, noticing the wanting and the thoughts and what I should do and say, oh, it's okay and all of that. No big deal. And then the craving just went away, just completely went away. 
and just sit there and see it completely go away. And then don't just get up and run. Feel what I was saying, the absence of craving. How that limitation, that narrowing of the depth, the breadth of mind and heart is gone and it's just, ah, peace. Just like that. It's such a little thing. We can do this, you know, hundreds of times a day. And it gets really interesting. And this is, in that little moment, that wasn't like, you know, a big aha, now I'm, you know, liberated, the mind is forever free from clinging. But it was a moment where the heart-mind was free from clinging. And that moment comes and goes, but in that moment we get the intimation, you know, a little, little beginning glimpse into what was the Buddha talking about when he says, you know, what does one know? I think Greg said this, that nothing, the enlightened one knows, that nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to, worth holding to. It's not a put down of things. It's saying that this relationship of grasping onto something to make me whole, complete for gratification is the source of our suffering. And by not seeing it, by continuing to give all the energy, the focus to the object, outwards to the object, we're continuing, well not we, but that process continues to strengthen the sense of self and other, of separation, of um, we don't see the emptiness of self-existence in any object. So this is just the last thing I just want to point to the way, even more subtle way, I think, that craving uh, really distorts perception and keeps our suffering going. That in a, in a moment of craving, it keeps us zoning in, moving into whatever the object is, whether it's a cookie or, or a particular chair or a mood or a memory or a way I want to think about myself. But as soon as there's that craving, it's like the mind and it's, this can be very subtle, right? We're not having a huge, this is very subtle, where the attention fixates on the object. Now you can be really focused, focus attention really on one object, that doesn't mean it's craving, don't get me wrong. So we can be very, just very relaxed, sinking into just the breath. The mind is not craving. Learn to recognize that contraction of craving. We can be really concentrated on one thing. That doesn't mean it's craving. But the craving is just a kind of zoning into the, into the object. Oh, yeah, there's that, there's that. So we can also be with a breath, like be with a breath, be with a breath. And what's really getting strong in that that we don't notice is the sense of me wanting object. You know what I see? You see what I mean? And so the sense of me gets strong, the sense of object gets strong. This is another thing with language, with English anyway, you know, if we say, I see the bowl. So just the way English language works, there's always me separate from the object, you know? So that just tends to be the habit of our mind. And so craving, even so subtle, perpetuates that. That's just all I wanted to say about this is about don't get all crazy about it, but just notice how it tends to isolate things out and keep us in that sense of separateness, of isolation. The escape, simply the willingness to be steady with the awareness. Not try to make the experience be what we think, but just that willingness to be steady with the awareness.
So I'll just end with a couple of quotations. This is from Ajahn Chah. Worldly accomplishments on whatever level still leave you in this realm of suffering. Whatever happiness there may be comes about in dependence on external things. It's not the happiness of freedom, the happiness that does not depend on anything external. What is it we depend on? And by depending, he means craving. We depend on possessions, on pleasure, on reputation, on praise, on wealth. We lean on all these things, like leaning on a rotting old tree trunk. After we lean on it for too long, it breaks and falls, and we fall with it. Such is worldly happiness. This is from Adi Ashanti. Those who are free don't want anything. They don't want anything from their mind. They don't want anything from their emotions. They don't want anything from anyone. And they don't want anything from life. They don't want anything. If you don't want, what's left is an incredible sense of being free. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.